Good morning. Good morning. I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day, too. It's, fair, it's incomplete, but it's fair to say that uh, the Holy Spirit is the mother of the church, so it's appropriate that today we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, Acts 19, Paul goes into Ephesus and he finds this group of disciples, the text says. And he's with them for a bit and then he asks them a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, well, no, uh, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Then he asks the question, well, then whose baptism were you baptized in? And so we were baptized in the, name, in the baptism of John. And Jesus explains, okay, well, the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism to prepare you for the coming of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah Jesus. So apparently they think that's a good idea because they are baptized then in the name of Jesus. And as they are baptized in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they speak in tongues and they prophesy and something happens. Something new comes into their life. Now, what's going on there and what's the point? Somehow, when when Paul asked that question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It it seems like he recognizes there's something missing in their life. They're called disciples, and I take that to mean that they were acting on what they knew. They were trying to be faithful to live out what they knew. But there was something missing. And Paul senses that and he asks him a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And he said, no, we haven't even heard of him. So Paul explains to them about uh, what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And when he's, as they're baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit. What that tells us is that there's an inextricable connection between knowing Jesus and committing yourself to Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit isn't active in your life, then it means there's something deficient in your understanding of Jesus and of what Jesus came to do. There's an inextricable link between Jesus and what it means to follow him, and the Holy Spirit, and what it means to receive him. Now, unlike these uh, disciples in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus, believers today have heard of the Holy Spirit. We've all heard of the Holy Spirit. But I think it's also true that most of us are at least a little bit fuzzy about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, we're just not quite sure. And you can understand why people are fuzzy about this, why we're a bit unsure in our understanding of the Holy Spirit. You know, you can, you can kind of, you can visualize God the Father. After all, he's a father. We, we have a sense for what fathers are. And we, can, and we can get an understanding of Jesus because he was a human being. You know, you could see him, you could touch him. People saw him and touched him, and, and you know, you get a sense for that. But the Holy Spirit, well, you know, he's a person without a body. You know, what do you do with that? 
So today I'm going to try to answer three basic questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And how should we respond to the Spirit? So those three questions are in your bulletin. Uh, Tom mentioned earlier this morning that I have a lot of points in my sort of sub-outline. Don't get lost in the points. Keep the big questions in mind. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And what does it mean for us to respond to him? How should we respond to the Holy Spirit? So here's my first point. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a power. He's not an influence. He's not this benign energy in the universe. He's not the force of Star Wars. He's not an it. He's a person who thinks, who feels, who acts, who moves. Now, this is important. Because if you think of the Holy Spirit as some kind of force, some kind of mysterious power, then what you're thinking in your head is, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? How can I just get more of it? That's exactly what Simon the sorcerer was thinking in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, there's this great movement of God going on. Is a guy named Simon who is a kind of sorcerer, magician, who's got his own spiritual kind of power. But he sees what, what's going on among the believers. He sees the power of the Holy Spirit descending on people. He says, I want that. How can I get that? How much will it cost me? And he tries to buy the Holy Spirit, just like he'd buy a tank of gas. And when he does that, the reason he wants to buy is because he just wants the power. He wants to use the the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do. It's selfish, it's arrogant, it's proud, and it's tragic. Contrast that with what happens in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, where the believers in Antioch are gathered together and they're praying. And and, uh, there's a group of uh, leaders in the church of Antioch together and they hear the Holy Spirit say to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice the emphasis here, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He's a person. He's not somebody that we kind of acquire, something that we acquire like a power or a resource. He's a person who we come to and submit to because he is the Lord. And so Barnabas and Saul, Saul, who becomes Paul, they recognize that the Holy Spirit has the authority and a privilege and a right to put a claim on their lives, and they surrender to that call. And through their influence, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people come to believe in the Lord Jesus in a Roman Empire, over time, it stood in its head. There's a new king in the Roman Empire because Barnabas and Saul recognize that the Holy Spirit is a person to be followed, to be obeyed, to be surrendered, not a power to acquire and control and manipulate for their own ends. It's important that we know that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a power not in it. He has all kinds of attributes of personality. I'm just going to run through these quick. He has a will, we're told, in 1 Corinthians 12. He has emotions in Ephesians 4. 
he, and in Romans 3, he speaks Acts 10. He does things only a person can do. He teaches us about Christ, we're told in John 14. He testifies, uh, about, he testifies to us about Jesus. Now, in a courtroom, it's always a person who gives witness, right? Only a person can witness to anything. We're told that in John 15. He guides us, John 16. He intercedes with the Father for us. When you intercede for someone, you're making a personal request to someone who has the ability to do something about the situation. Interceding is something only a person can do. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He performs miracles we see in Acts 8 and other places. Philippians 2.1 says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, fellowship can only happen between persons who have a relationship with one another. He is a person. And he can be treated like a person. He can be lied to. He can be obeyed. He can be grieved. He can be blasphemed against. The Holy Spirit is a person. But he's also spirit. He is spirit. That means he has no body. We can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't smell him. You know, we can't relate to him exactly the way we relate to another person. So the question comes up, well, how does the Holy Spirit reveal himself? How does someone without a body reveal himself to us? And how do we experience him when we can't experience him like we can experience one another in this sanctuary? Well, a couple things to keep in mind. In both Hebrew and Greek, the words for, in Hebrew it's the word ruach, and in Greek it's uh, pneuma, or if you're a modern Greek speaker, pnevma. In both Hebrew and Greek, the words for breath and wind and spirit are the same. Okay? And so, in Scripture, through all of Scripture, you see the interplay of these words, spirit and wind and breath, and they give us an idea of how we experience, how the Spirit reveals Himself and how we experience Him. So, for example, in uh, Genesis 2-7, we're told that uh, God breathes life into the first man, Adam, and the man becomes a living spirit. That word breath, it's as if it's saying, it's, it's a way of saying he breathes the Holy Spirit into that person and he becomes a living spirit. In Ezekiel 37, there's this wild scene where the prophet is told to prophesy to this valley of dry bones and to prophesy that, and to breathe life, to call upon the Spirit to breathe life into them. And the Spirit comes into those dry bones and they come to life. We experience the Holy Spirit as life entering into our souls, into our bodies. Romans 8.11 says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. The Spirit is is a life giver. He brings life. He's also like the wind. 
and kind of an invisible source who's, you know, you can't easily, you can't, uh, invisible power, you can't really see where it's coming from, but you can feel the wind. The wind can uproot trees, it can tear down buildings. He's saying the, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. Great, immense power. So Genesis 1-2, we're told that the Holy Spirit was blowing, that the Spirit was blowing over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was bringing creation, in other words, into existence. The Spirit was the power bringing creation into existence, the one bringing creation into existence, along with the Father and the Son, we, we hear, we know as we read more of Scripture. He has creative power to transform. John 3, verses 5 to 8, talks about an encounter Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. Let me read that text for you. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes to him secretly at night because he wants to learn more about Jesus, but he doesn't want to be outed as being interested in Jesus. So he comes at night and they have this uh, conversation. And Jesus says to him, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised by saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. But you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that you may not know where the Spirit is coming from or where it's going, but you know it's there. When you experience the Spirit, you experience it. You know it. And the Spirit has power to transform lives, to bring dead souls to life again. The Spirit has power to enable one to be born again. Acts 2, verses 1 and 2, this is where uh, the disciples are gathered together. They're hiding kind of in a room. They're, they were told to wait for the promise of the Father to come by Jesus. So they're waiting and they're praying. And all of a sudden, something happens. We're told that, like, that, the, that the Spirit comes upon like, like, like wind. It comes with kind of an irresistible force. And the Spirit comes, mighty blowing wind upon them, and they get raised up. They're kind of hiding in a room, they go and they start proclaiming the glory of the Lord, the mighty acts of God. That's the Spirit at work in them. The Spirit shapes the hearts of these disciples. He empowers them to be a mighty army, proclaiming the good news of the gospel and doing great good to those all around them. That's the Spirit enabling them to do that. A mighty power at work in them and through them. There are all kinds of other images about the Spirit as well. The Spirit's like a dove. He's like oil. He's like fire. He's like water. He's a seal or stamp of our salvation. He's the down payment or a first installment on our salvation. All kinds of images, all of them important to, to unpack. We're not going to do that today. And my wife's happy. But we're not going to do all that today. So he is Spirit. He's a, she's happy because we have Mother's Day plans. 
I saw some quizzical looks on people's faces. <laughs> so, so he is a person, he is a spirit, and he is God. He does things only God can do. Things that are true of the Father and that are true of the Son are also true of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in creation. They're involved in uh, redemption or recreation. They're, they're involved in empowering and leading the church. He does things only God the Father and only God the Son do. They do things that only God can do. He's given the rights or privileges or authority that only belong to God. There's an interesting scene in, uh, in Acts chapter 5 where a, there was a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who, who kind of pull off a scam, try to pull off a scam of sorts. They're dishonest about something before the church. And in, in Acts chapter 5, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, the apostle Peter says to them, why do you lie to the Holy Spirit? Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? This is in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he says, you have not lied to just humans, but to God. So verse 3, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, you lied to God. They're interchangeable in a sense because they both are God. He's associated on equal plane with all the other members of the Trinity. What God said in the Old Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit says in the New Testament. Let me read you a passage from Joel, uh, uh, Jeremiah 31. Starting with verse 33. This is the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 33. This is God speaking. The days are coming, declares the Lord, and he continues, but I'm jumping down to 33. This is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach the neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. So who said this? Talk to me. Who said this? Yeah, God. The Lord said this. Okay? The Lord said this. That's what, the, that's what Scripture tells us. Now I'm jumping to Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm reading verses 15 to 17. The writer of Hebrews says, The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, the Holy Spirit says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So, what does the passage, this passage in Hebrews say? It says the exact same thing 
that the passage Jeremiah 31 said, right? In Jeremiah 31, we're told that it's the Lord who says this. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're told it's the Holy Spirit that says this. This is simply a way of saying, of indicating that what the Father does and what the Son does, the Holy Spirit does, they have authority. Because, and the Holy Spirit has that kind of authority because he also is part of the Trinity. He is God. Then you remember, you know the, the end of, chapter, of Matthew 28, the baptism formula. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, you know, the, the text continues. The thing to keep in mind, the thing to grab hold of right here is it doesn't say baptiz- baptizing, them, baptizing them in the names, plural, It says, baptizing them in the name, singular, the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? So all of this is under the title, Who is the Holy Spirit? Moving to the second question, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, as I've kind of said already, the Holy Spirit does what God the Father does and God the Son does, the Holy Spirit also does. They're all involved in the work of God together. But one of the things that distinguishes the Holy Spirit's work is that he enables us to glorify Christ. He glorifies Christ and enables us to glorify Christ. John 16, 13 and 14 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from he that he will receive what he will make known to you. He will glorify me. I was trying to think of a good analogy for, for this. What's, what's going on here? And I, and I started thinking about the role of a best man or a maid of honor at a wedding. What's the role of the best man and the maid of honor? Well, their big role, ultimately, is to support, encourage uh, the, the couple in their marriage. They're there to be folks who really support and encourage the marriage. But on the wedding day, what the best man and the maid of honor really do, what they're supposed to do, is make sure that the spotlight is on the, married, the couple to be married. The spotlight isn't on them. Their, their role isn't to be funny or cute, their role is to put the spotlight on the bride and the groom. Isn't that so? That's what they're supposed to do. What the Holy Spirit does is he puts the spotlight, flush on, straight on, Jesus, who he is and what he's done. He glorifies Jesus by keeping the spotlight on Jesus. He glorifies Jesus by enabling us to keep our focus on Jesus. He doesn't put the focus on himself. He always puts it on Jesus. The spotlight's on Jesus. He wants Jesus to be glorified, to be honored, to be focused on, to be obeyed. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And he does that by teaching us about Jesus in the scriptures. He does that by drawing people to Jesus. He does that by uniting us to Christ so that we can live like Christ and honor Christ. If those of you doing the PowerPoint slides, I'm jumping ahead. So 
That's the way it is. <laughs> Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray, he says, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith because the Holy Spirit strengthens us to do that, to enable that to happen. He enables us to abide in Christ. John 15, you know the passage. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides me will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, that whole chapter. But in that, what he's saying is that if we remain, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and be done for you. Now the question is, how do we remain in Christ and how do his words remain in us? John expands on it and says it's through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to stay connected to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who keeps bringing Jesus' words back into our memory. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us understand the scriptures when we read them or when we hear them preached. The Holy Spirit does all that. Why? So that we can stay united with Jesus Christ. We're also told in John 14, Jesus is telling us, I'm going to go, and they're, they're not happy about that. And he says, you know, it's going to be a good thing when I go, because when I go, I'm going to send the Spirit. And he is going to be another counselor or another advocate, another comforter. Different translations translate the word. The, word, the Greek word is parakletos, and uh, it's translated a bunch of different ways. But the idea behind it is somebody who comes alongside you to strengthen you. The word comforter comes from two Latin words, cum and fortis. Cum means with, fortis is strength. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us to strengthen us, to do uh, what we cannot do on our own and to even attempt to do things that we wouldn't even attempt to do on our own. That's what happens on Pentecost. The The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they start doing things they hadn't even imagined that they could do. They're transformed, they're changed, they're empowered, they're enlivened, they're full. And out of that fullness, that abundance of the Holy Spirit's presence and power, they do what Jesus told them to do. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they do it. Because The Holy Spirit is with them to help them, to enable them to do it. He's the comforter. He comes alongside them with strength. He empowers them for mission. He helps them do even greater works than Jesus. Not greater in quality, but greater in quantity. He he transforms their lives so they start living lives that are so different from the lives of the people around them. People look at them and say, we want that. We don't know what it is, but we want that. That's what's going on in the book of Acts. People are afraid of what's going on, but they can't help wanting it, so they come nonetheless. 
The Spirit does that by encouraging us, by strengthening us, by giving us spiritual gifts to be used in love for the common goods. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, 12 and 14 to kind of talk about this, the gifts and how they're supposed to be used. They're, they're, they're to be used for the common good and to God's purposes. In chapter 13, they're to be used only in love. Power, the power of the Holy Spirit without the love of the Spirit is no spirit at all. He gives gifts for the common good to be used in the purpose of God and expressed only through love. He creates the unity of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.3 Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, Paul tells us. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are baptized by one Spirit into one body whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. The spirit is the one who helps us stay united in the body of Christ. And it says the body of Christ is united, that Jesus is revealed to the world, we're told by Jesus in John 17. So how should we respond to the spirit? Question number three, how should we respond to the spirit? Three things. Do not grieve the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. So do not grieve the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 29 to 32. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by using rotten speech. Now, what qualifies as rotten speech? He lifts some things here, but it's vulgarities, obscenity, it's dirty jokes, it's, it's off-color stories, it's angry outbursts, it's harsh words, it's mean-spirited comments, it's gossip and rumors and accusations, false accusations. It's endless criticism. It's quick cutting comments. It's cheap shots. It's condemning others. It's talking too much and talking without listening. That's all rotten speech that grieves the Holy Spirit. Instead, we're told to speak good words to build people up instead of tearing them down. It's speaking words that minister grace to people. And it's doing it all the time and in every circumstance. We are to speak good words that bring grace according to the need of the moment. Every word, all good, all grace, all the time. Every word, all good, all grace, all the time. 
That's what the Spirit wants from us. That's what the Spirit is building in us. So you can grieve the Holy Spirit by using rotten speech. You can also grieve the Holy Spirit by nursing rotten attitudes. He's got a whole list of anger, slander, malice, all that kind of stuff. Instead of that, all those things must go, and instead of that, be replaced with something a whole lot better, much better. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. Kind and compassionate, forgiving one another. That's what the Holy Spirit wants from us. So we can grieve the Holy Spirit by rotten speech and rotten attitudes, and we can bless the Holy Spirit by using our words for good and living lives with kindness, compassion, and grace. We should also respond to the Holy Spirit by not quenching the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. What does it mean to put out the Spirit's fire? Well, the word translated put out here is, is used to refer to putting out literal fires. You know, you, you can douse a, fly, a fire with water. You could, you could uh, extinguish it by covering it with, I don't know, dirt. But you normally don't quench a fire. You don't put out a fire by accident. You intend to put out a fire. The fire goes out because somebody either lets it die down or takes actions, takes steps to put it out. This suggests that the Holy Spirit naturally burns in us unless we do something to put out the Spirit's fire. So how would you put out the Spirit's fire in your life or in someone else's life? You can do it with disobedience. You can do it with, by harboring sin. You can do it by criticizing someone else's love for the Lord. You can do it by harboring bitterness in your heart. The preeminent way, though, to put out the Holy Spirit's fire is by saying no to God. Saying no to God again and again and again. Yet we have an example of that in Scripture. Numbers chapter 13. The Israelites are in the desert moving through the wilderness. And Moses, God tells Moses to select 12 people and send them out to scout the land. And they go out and scout the land. and come back and say, the land's amazing. It's got all this cool stuff in it. Grapes bigger than your head. You know, I mean, really cool, amazing stuff. However, the people in the land are like giants. You know, and if we try to go into this land, they're going to step on us and crush us. And uh, there are two of the 12 who say, no, we can do this. God is with us. We can do this. And the other just said, not a chance. Not a chance. You've got to be nuts. We would be nuts if we tried this. These guys are going to crush us. They say no to God again and again and again. They try to turn the people against obeying God and terrible things come up. God is calling us to something. He's calling us to something individually and as a church. And it's going to be way bigger than what we think we can do. Way bigger. And by ourselves, we would be fools. I mean, really stupid to do it. But he never calls us to do anything by ourselves. That's the whole idea of the Spirit coming to us with strength. 
So we have the opportunity and a privilege to hear the call of God upon us and to say yes to it. And if we say yes to it, the Spirit's going to fall upon us. The Spirit's going to fill us and encourage us and strengthen us to do it. That's the promise of God to us. We do not quench the Holy Spirit. We say yes to God. And then thirdly, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's not just an emotional experience. It's not reserved for special people. It's not something to ignore because it's controversial. It's controversial because some people overemphasize the Spirit and freak people out. Uh, They misappropriate the Spirit. But most of us underemphasize the Spirit. Not something that we should do. So, a couple of things about this verse. That this verse, it's a command. It's a present tense command. Every Christian is to be filled with the Spirit all the time. That's what present tense means. Continual action. The filling of the Spirit is supposed to be the normal way of life for all believers, all Christians. It's in a passive voice. It means it's not fill yourself, but be filled. That means to be filled, that it's a work of God. It's not our work. It's God's work to fill us. The Holy Spirit is ready and willing to fill us at any moment. We just have to make ourselves available to him. Okay? Now, some of you have probably heard the analogy that you know, being filled with the Spirit is like going to get a tank of gas. You know, you, you drive and you run out of gas, you have to get another tank. There's some truth to that, but it's misleading. A better analogy, I think, it's misleading because the Holy Spirit never runs out. A better analogy is what happens when you get on the T in Boston or the, you know, you know what happens? You get on the T, there are three rails, right? Two rails for the tires, for the... And then a third rail, which is where all the power is. And if, if the train is connected to the third rail, it has power to move. The Holy Spirit is our third rail. He gives us power to move, to respond. So to be filled with Spirit, simply to stay connected to the Spirit. Simply to stay connected. We do that by acknowledging our need for the Spirit and crying out for the Spirit to continue to fill us. And it's by staying connected to the Spirit, by not grieving him by not quenching him. Let me close with this. John 7, 37 and 39. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a big feast. And Jerusalem is packed with people. And we're told in John 7, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. He's saying, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. 
and drink of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water, the living water of the Holy Spirit will flow from within them. Let anyone who is thirsty come to drink. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just let God know you're thirsty and you want him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for Mother's Day. Thank you for all mothers mean to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are, in a sense, our mother. You have birthed the life of Jesus in us and stayed us in Jesus, and we're grateful. And we ask, Lord, that this day you'd help us to uh, recognize our need for you and to cry out for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're here with us and for us and want to be in us and it work through us. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.